You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 9. Thank you, Emily, for that leading praise and worship. I appreciate that. That was really good. Thank you, Terry, for also reading. That was that was a good word. All right. So, as you can see, maybe you can figure this out. That between Dell and I, we almost have one complete mind. So, we we work well together. We play well off one another. That's why one of us sits here and the other one sits here. So we can make sure that we're saying what we're supposed to say and covering what we're supposed to cover. And so, um, if you've been with us for a while, we have been in Genesis 8. And Genesis 8, uh, or the first several chapters of Genesis, we've worked up until last week we were in Genesis 8, where Dell taught us um, on Noah in the flood. And we looked at Noah and how God put Noah on the ark and how God took care of Noah and his family while they were on the ark and met their knees while they were on the ark. And then God called them off the ark. So today in chapter 9, we're going to continue to look at uh, what happens when they get off the ark. That's what uh, chapter 9 is about. And I've broken it down into several different uh, sections, and, and we may cover two out of the three. We may not get to the curse. Um, got a lot to go over. So first, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 7 and see some of the things that have changed, what's new, what's happened uh, uh, now that the world has been washed by this deluge, by this flood. And then second, we're going to look at uh, the covenant that is unique. And then third, we're going to look at... Um, Something that I found really interesting, uh, kind of in with a, what the world looks at and what, what we look at as, as Christians. So if you're with me in Genesis chapter 9, we're going to start in verses, uh, verse 1 there and, and read through verse 7. So follow along with me as I start in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And, you, and your, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So the first thing I want us to look at is how some things have changed, but how some other things have remained the same. So starting in verse 1, it says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply multiply and fill the earth. And then down in verse 7, it repeats this again. Uh, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. 
So let me ask you, does this sound familiar at all? It should. I mean, we, we studied this back in chapter 1, uh, verses 21 through 23. We see this. It says, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with, uh, with which the waters swarm, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, talking to the sea creatures and to the birds. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and morning on the fifth day. And then if we look forward uh, to verse 28, we see on the sixth day of creation, God speaking to Adam and Eve, and he says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So right off, we're able to identify this command that we've already seen uh, that God gave to Adam. And it, what rings true before the flood, it, it stands true for Noah and his family. This time, however, uh, this command is given to sinners in a broken world. And I, I, wanted, I want us to stop and think about that for a second. You see, we... We want to read the scriptures, and then we want, to, we want to examine them. And so what comes to mind? And so as I was studying this, what came to my mind is, what a sovereign God we have. I say that because he knows exactly what is about to happen over these next thousands of years. He knows the hearts, and he knows the depravity of man, yet he can, continues to... Um, give this command to these eight people. He doesn't give it to them once, but he gives it to them twice. And we see that God is so in control of every detail throughout all the cosmos that he is fully prepared for the day that he's going to have to turn his back on his only begotten son and send him to die a death on a cross in order that we, as image bearers, will be brought back to him. I mean, we are all... Here, everybody in this room is here right now because of people were faithful to this command to be fruitful and multiply and because we serve and have a patient and long-suffering God. I mean, we, we should praise God that he put Noah on this ark and then commanded his family to multiply. That's, I mean, that's great for us, good news for us. That's why we're here. So if we keep going forward, if we look at uh, verses 2 through 4, it says this, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be your food. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. So, while we see the command to be fruitful and multiply stay the same, here we see a change. And, and when we look at this, we, we, didn't, we didn't see this before the flood. It's, it's interesting that it appears that pre-flood, that even though sin had entered the world and that man was now evil, that animals were not commanded to fear humans until after the flood. It appears that the relationship that man had with animals was very close to the same to that 
which was given to Adam early on in the garden. And I find that really interesting, is that right up until after the flood, this relationship with man and animals has not changed. Think about it for a second. What if God had changed it while they were on the boat? (laughs) That made for an interesting boat ride, right? Oh, by the way, Noah, uh, you two are no longer going to get along. That thing starts shifting pretty quick. Um, so as, as we see this, we see that now God gives everything that moves as food to man. And this is, this is also a big change because in the garden, God had given green plants both to man and animals. And that was, that was the food source. And now what we see here is, is God is providing We see that things have changed. And God, he hasn't changed. He's still the provider God. He's still meeting needs. I mean, without sin, the green plants were enough. But now in this fallen world, he's providing in a new way. And if, once again, let's just think about this real quick and and meditate on what we know about God's word. When the Israelites come out of Egypt, who gives them manna to eat? God, right? And, and when uh, Jesus ends his 40 days in the desert, what happens? God sends the angels to minister to him and feed him. And when this young guy shows up with two fish and five loaves, who blesses and multiplies it to feed the thousands that have gathered? Jesus does, right? So even today... Uh, as, we, as we talked about the Lord's Supper, and next week as we take communion, and we're going to eat the bread and we're going to drink of the cup, we do so knowing this, this picture of, of Jesus. Is, he's our provider. He is our Savior and King. He is the bread of life, and he, there is life-giving power in His blood, right? So this leads us to the very next verse where we see that this, what the power and the meaning of the blood is in, in verse 4, it goes on to say, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For, you, for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. For every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. For God made man in his own image. You see, there's a parallel here that, that I think we need to see, and that's, that's one of this restriction of eating blood is directly linked to this restriction from eating from the tr- uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. You see, there's still, there's still guidelines. There's still rules. There's still uh, boundaries that we have to stay in. You see, I mean, yeah, man can eat steak now, but it's got to be at least medium rare. You can't eat it straight off the cow. It's not okay. It's interesting that as we continue to read the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, it has a lot to say about the importance of blood and the power of blood. We see that the, any blood of any man or living creature represents its life. And we see that God... The giver of life holds man's life blood in debt. And if we look at verse 5 here, God says that I will require your blood as payment for your souls. 
That's what he's saying here. And for this reason, when God gives his law later on, we see that this priest, uh, the priest, they could eat the flesh of the sacrificed animals, but the blood, all the blood had to be poured out on the altar and sacrifice. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. We see this restated in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. It says this in Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what do we know? We know that There is life in the blood and that at some point God will require a blood payment for our souls. And here's the bad news. This is what everybody comes to hear is the bad news. Week after week. Here's the bad news is that your blood and my blood is no good. It's junk blood. It's trash. It's been saturated with sin from generation to generation to generation. It's contaminated. Here's the good news. Listen to Hebrews again, 9-11. It says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that we have to come... Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but listen, by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For it is the blood of, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, what a gift of life we have in the blood of the Son of God. Amen? The last statement here uh, we need to address in in this little part is is verse 6. It says, Forever... Uh, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Let me read that again. However, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Uh, this is a, an important message, and it deserves a, a sermon unto itself. Uh, but we're, we're moving forward, and we're moving forward quickly. We're drinking from the water hose. Um, we, we live in a world that has taken this idea of capital punishment and put it in this made-up, slippery slope of ideas that Christians are divided over. I've been in church my whole life. I've heard a version of this question my entire life, and it goes something like this. As Christians, should we not forgive everybody of every sin, even murder? And to cut it short, to answer a question with a question, is not every word of God in Scripture God-breathed and useful for correcting and teaching? Is there anything in this book that's 
that's not from God himself? Did he not put Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 in there for a reason? See, we, we tend to make it more difficult than it has to be. The simple fact is that God has a greater understanding of life than we ever will. He's the one who created it. Another issue is that we don't understand what we are. We don't understand what we are. We are the very image of God. This doesn't just apply to Adam and Eve. He says this after the flood to sinners. Two fallen people. That still applies to us today. You and me and every person in this room is made in the very image of God. Nothing else in all creation has this title. So when God sees his very image destroyed, he demands justice. And that's why we are truly disturbed by the millions and millions of babies aborted. It's not just that, oh, she might cure cancer, or he might find a new planet, or he might be an Olympic athlete, or she might win a gold medal one day. It's the simple, undeniable fact that those who are murdered before they take their first breath were made in the very image of God. That is a really, really tough word. But our goal here at Plant Grow Harvest is to teach the word in its entirety. I know that many of us have had brushes with many sins in this world and may we just lay them at the feet of Jesus. Admit the sinners that we are and know that his blood washes all those sins away. Next we're going to look at verses 8 through 17 where we see God make this covenant. So God says in, in, in verse 8, follow along with me there. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. For, is, for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and, I, and it shall be a sign for the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, if you're a, a, a new Christian, or if you've, if you've uh, maybe not been in the Bible a lot, this is, this is a big theme that runs through the Bible, all right? It's, it's this theme of covenant. It's this idea of covenant. And it is, it's truly a rare thing that we talk about in, in modern times. I mean, we don't 
use the word covenant in our day-to-day lives. We, we talk about contracts or agreements. You know, we hear a ball player sign new contracts with new teams, uh, and then that, those usually fall apart or, or something happens there. Or we hear of agreements or arrangements between like two companies uh, and, and how in uh, business partners. But we rarely hear this word covenant. And in some ways, I think that's a very good thing. You see, because we tend to devalue words by misusing them and, and decreasing their value. And so I've, I've come across this, this uh, definition of covenant it's uh it's it's not perfect but it's it's a good it's at least a good place to start and it says this an english translation of the hebrew word berit and greek word i'm not even going to try it word that describes a formal relationship between two parties who's agree to set up set up a promise so they can work together towards a common goal and uh that's a, I find that to be a pretty good baseline definition. But even what we're going to see here in this covenant, it doesn't necessarily fit this definition. There's a, there's a few things that are different here. And so um, when, when we read the Bible, we see all these covenants. We actually see tons of covenants between two men. We see uh, a covenant between Jonathan and David and, and, and several kings, between kings. But then we see uh, also covenants between two nations. Um, but the most important covenants that we see in God's word are between God and man. And so this one that we're looking at today is, is called the uh, Noahic covenant because it's it's based around noah but as we continue to read through the old testament we come into contact with the abrahamic covenant and the mosaic covenant and 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 the davidic covenant and all of these covenants serve as this legal binding agreement between god and, and his people and they are to encourage and provide hope and point to a day when this new covenant will be established And we see this new covenant fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus Christ. It is truly fascinating and miraculous to see the events that unfold over thousands of years. And there's nothing like it in all of human history. It stands alone. Um, So all of these Old Testament covenants, they speak to the fact that one day God and God alone will make right all these wrongs of the world. And that the death and sin, will, it'll be defeated. It'll be washed away. Then once again, people will be able to be reunited reunited to God. And as we know, when we look at the new covenant and we see Jesus, we see that whoever believes in him gains this eternal life. So in a brief overview of the covenants, uh, that's, that's, that's basically a very brief overview. And we'll come back to those time and time again. But let's focus back on this uh, Noahic covenant for a few minutes. So first I want us to see who is this covenant with? And the simple answer that I've always said or, or known is, well, Noah, right? Noah, of course. But that's, that's just partially right. Let's carefully read what it says here in verses 8 through 10 again. It says this, Then Noah said, or then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establishment Establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Yeah, see, we're right. But then look at verse 10. And with every living creature that is with you, 
the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So what do we see here? We see that the covenant isn't just between God and Noah and his family, but it includes every living creature. What's really interesting is that God repeats himself five more times through verse 17. He says, all flesh, every beast, all flesh, every beast. You see, every other covenant that we see moving forward is strictly between God and man, but here we see him include every living creature, all flesh, everything that has lifeblood in it. And I have to admit that I I never really gave that much thought. But now that I do, it, it makes sense. You see that all sin, uh, old, old pastor, Herb Hodges, you guys know him. A lot of you guys know him. He'd write S-I-N on the board. And he said, look, sin, selfishness. And he's right. Selfishness is at the middle of most all sin. And so in my flesh, in my selfishness, when I read God's word, I'm looking at what's this got to do with me? You know, how how do I fit into this? And here we see a creator God that is concerned for all of his creation. He's so big, he is so powerful, his love is so great and so wide that it is more than capable of caring and providing for all creation. So here we see him speak to every living thing and assure them that he will never again flood the whole world. He is a good God. And I chalk this up to one of the mysteries of God. I believe that one day when we reach heaven, we will see this relationship between God and his creation and our minds will be blown. Think about that in in light of what we just read. Think about that and listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 19 through 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We all too often play this game like we understand God, but He is far more awesome than we can even imagine. I don't bring all this up about creation to say we should worship creation. It's to glorify the Creator. It's to point to the fact that Not only does he love each and every one of us, he loves every person everywhere at all times, and he loves creation. And when we get to heaven, our minds will be blown at how amazing he is. Lord, forgive us for putting you in a box, for making you a small God. You are not small. Next, what we see is Noah and his family's role. What is it? What is in, 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 the other, in the other covenants, we see 
uh, uh, man is given <laughs> man is given this this part in the covenant, uh, and the problem is that because of sin, man always fails. Right? Uh, I, I would equate it to like me asking Eva Reese there to help follow me around the house, and as I'm on the ladder hanging this or doing that, just you just all you do is hold the hammer. All you got to do is hold the hammer. Just hand me the hammer when I need the hammer. Hey, Eva, give me the hammer. Well, I don't have it, Daddy. Where? I left it in the other room. That's, that's basically man in all the covenants that we see in, in Abraham and Moses and David. All these things, man just continues to fail. And it's only God. It falls fully on God to fulfill this, this both sides of the covenant because he fulfills each and every one of them. Every one of them. Here, and here we see the Lord say, I, I will establish this covenant and I will provide the sign of the covenant. And we see, we see this in the new covenant. We see the same thing in the new covenant. It's, it's God becoming man that is the, in the sacrificial death of Jesus, the God-man, that this covenant between God and man is made perfect and fulfilled. It took God representing both parties at the table for this final ultimate covenant to take place. So what did Noah and his family do? They just sat back and nodded. They didn't do anything. It's much like us in the new covenant. What are we supposed to do? Sit back and nod. Yes, God. Yes, Jesus. I accept your gift of grace and eternal life. Last point here is, what is the sign of the covenant? Verse 12, it says this, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and, I have, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that it is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the question is, what is the sign of the covenant? The answer is short and sweet here. It's the bow. The bow is the sign of the covenant. Once again, my flesh gets in the way when I read this text because I don't know about you. You can say what you want. I got several pictures of rainbows on my phone. I like rainbows. Whenever I see them, I'm like, man, that's a cool rainbow. Click. It's a good, it's, it's pretty awesome. And I think, man, isn't that great? Isn't that great that God gave me, gave me that rainbow so I could look at that rainbow and know that he's going, he's just got, he's going to take care of me and he's never going to flood the world again. He gave that rainbow to me. But when I read it slowly, who does it say the rainbow is for? It's not just for us. It says, verse 16, it says, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So who makes the wind blow? God. Who brings the clouds? God. Who brings the rain? God. Who causes the bow to appear? God, 
Who looks at the bow and remembers his everlasting covenant? God and God alone. This is a simple reminder that we are not the center of all existence. God is. God is the center. He brings the bow. We get to look at it, but he put it there for himself to remember. Last little bit. We're not going to get all the way through the end of this. We're going to stop uh, just here. I'm going to read verses uh, just 18 and 19. Genesis 9, 18 through 19. The son of Noah went, who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So, <laughs> we've covered a lot of stuff. Uh, thank you for bearing with me through all of that. So, this is, this is an interesting takeaway that I, that I like, that, that speaks to me, and, and maybe if you, you've got kind of a scientific bent mind like me, that maybe it speaks to you, but um, what we know is that we live in a world without it, and every, every young person in here can probably uh, affirm what I'm about to say, or, or even if you're our age, my age, whatever, you, we, we were taught in school these theories, these theories of evolution, these, these ideas that um, God is not needed to explain why we are here. In fact, that's the fathers of evolution. If you go back and look at these guys, uh, Darwin and the guy that was uh, uh, ahead of him, they're, part of their stated goal was to prove that we could exist, that, that there's, there's a way to prove that we can be here without this biblical flood, this, this worldwide deluge. If we can just knock that off the table, we can remove God from science. And, and I, I was taught that from a young age. Even here in, a, in the belt buckle of the Bible belt. I, I mean, we, we learned that in, in elementary school and high school. And I majored in, in biology in college. It's very helpful when you're hanging blinds and, and doing closets to have a degree in biology, by the way. If anybody wants to follow me in that path, highly recommend it. So... Um, I still love science. I, I enjoy science. It's something that I really like. And so I was always challenged all the way through college, like, you still believe in a God? You still, you still doubt evolution? After all that we know, after, you know, uh, we, we've, we've proven that there's no need for a, an intelligent design. We can, we can prove all that away. And, and I just was shocked by the massive holes in their argument time and time again. And so when I, when I read this verse, uh, I, was in, I was in college during the mid-2000s, and there was a lot of genetic research going on. This, this human genome project was really big and really happening, and it was like all the rage in the science world. And so they, they do this massive study of the human genome, and they find out, man, this thing's really simple. <laughs> Like, this, is, this should not be as simple as it is. And, 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 and 
they were, they were amazed by its simple complexity, that all people have this base DNA uh, structure that can cause the variety of, of people that we see in the world today. And, and not only just people, but, but all life is, is based off this DNA. And it doesn't make sense because there's, there's plants out there that have more complex DNA structures than you or me, believe it or not. It's, it's, none of it makes uh, evolutionary sense. Let me just make that clear. And, and, they, and they don't want to talk about that. <laughs> So, anyways, this this is a this is an article I found uh, that that came out uh, around late 2009. Well, mid mid 2009 when David uh, Dave, yeah David Brown wrote it. It's for the Washington Post. It's not the Crossville Chronicle or the Fairfield Glade Gazette. It's from the Washington Post. And what he's talking about here is uh, he's he's read this article or read this uh, write up of, of from a scientific uh, magazine where they did a study on 53 different genetic uh, people groups. And you know what's crazy? Is it all goes back to like three main branches. Wait, wait, hold on. Wait one second. What did we just read? This is, this is weird. I, I mean, what a coincidence, right? Because it's, it's just got to be coincidence. It can't be that God designed everything and he's in full control. Because... No, that, that just doesn't make sense in uh, the realm of uh, evolution. But look, what, is, what does it say here? The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three, the people of the whole earth were disp- uh, dispersed. There is a simplicity and all-inclusiveness to this number three. The triangle, the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Trinity. Three P, he's making fun of the Holy Trinity, by the way. Three P's in a pod. So it's perhaps not surprising that the family of man is divided that way also. He writes this whole article about how it goes back to three main stints. And those three aren't even mentioned in the article. And yet, we're the crazy ones for believing God's word. Hold fast to God's word. That's the takeaway. You don't have to be knee deep in this science uh, baloney to, you know, maybe and it, maybe that last five minutes has bored you to death, and I apologize. But it just shows, goes to show you that as we learn more and more, there is evidence upon evidence that points to God's word is true, and everything about it, everything about us, is is found in Him. In in that. That's why we started looking at Genesis in the first place. Because we live in this world that is constantly attacking what we believe. And it is throwing stones and, and, and launching uh, bombs at our, our foundation. And we've got to know what we know and know why we know it. And so, application. Application for today is, and it's very similar and it's not hard, and it's, it's very much what we say just about every Sunday. Be in the Word. Speak with your Heavenly Father. Young people, be in the Word. Read your Bibles. Talk to God. Trust that He knows that He can show you the path forward. Parents, 
Be in the Word. Pray to God. Through molding and modeling, bring your children into maturity. Show them the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and David, the God of the covenants, the God of Noah, the God of all creation. The world's not going to do it for you. There's a, there's a, hey. If you, if you just go out and drift, the, the current's going to take you the wrong way. You have to be intentional about where you steer your life. Whether you're 8 or 80. So, be intentional this week. Be intentional as, 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 a, as a young person, as a teenager, about how you dedicate each and every day unto the Lord. As an as a employer or employee, as, as we, we should work as, unto the Lord. As, as um, husbands and wives, building up one another in the love of the Lord. Um, we, have, we have just a little while to seek Him. Life is fleeting, and, and, and I pray that you don't leave this place this morning. If anything you heard this morning spoke to you, or, or if, you, if you heard something and, and you just thought, man, this Jesus, this, this lifeblood, as is, is crazy as it sounds to me as a sinner, I know that I need that. If you're here this morning and you know you need a Savior, if you know you need a Redeemer, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Dale. Because the day of the Lord draws near. And, and you need to know Him as your Savior. So, I'm going to pray. And uh, I'm going to pray and then Dale's got a couple of announcements. It's that two-mind thing working again. One mind and two bodies, yeah.